Pastor Xavier Reese reminds us why it's important to remain faithful to the Lord. The warning is to repent. This is the way to avert judgment and the consequence of a promise of judgment. The Church of Pergamos, Jesus says that unless she repents as a church, he will fight against her to judge her. Pretty stern words. Judgment begins at the house of God, remember? He's not talking to pagans, he's talking to his church. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. For a lot of Christians, their faith is based on a day of the week, but Pastor Xavier reminds us that our faith should dictate how we live day in and day out. Today, as we return to the book of Revelation and our visit to the city of Pergamum, we find out what happens to the believers who let the world dictate their relationship with the Lord. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 through 17, and the message is entitled, The Worldly Church, Pergamos. These messages, again, are very applicable to us. They're not just to the church of those days, because if it doesn't apply to our generation, then it's senseless even studying these messages. They must apply to us. You can be a Pergamos Christian, one who is worldly. You come to church, you read your Bible, you do this, you do that, but you're in the world. Your mind and your heart is in the world. And so we must pay heed to what Jesus says to this church. Again, the pattern is the same, though some exclusions, sometimes there's no condemnation to a couple of them. But for the most part, you have the proclamation, you have the commendation, you have the condemnation, you have the exhortation, and he finishes with the application. And we see these patterns very much with few exceptions. Now, look at verse 12, the proclamation. The identity of the recipient of the letter is to the angel of Pergamos, once again, the ministers, not the angel, but the minister, okay? These are the words of Jesus. These things says. They're not John's word, but the words of Jesus, so we have to pay close attention. Our Lord identifies himself to Pergamos as one who has a sharp two-edged sword, from chapter 1, verse 16. In this particular context, the word is ramphelia, which means a judgment sword, a large size sword. Now, the way to avert judgment is to be a doer of the word of God, not deceiving ourselves, James 1.22 says. This is the only way we can avert judgment. The simple teaching of Scripture is that once we're born again, we're to separate ourselves from the world. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 on down. Come out from among them. Don't be unequally yoked. The word sanctification, as you know, means to be set apart. The root word is the base for the word saint, holy, sanctified, sanctification. Same root word. To set ourselves apart. Now that we're born again, we don't live the way we used to. We live differently. Our lives have been changed. We live in the world, but not of the world. We line ourselves with the word of God. Notice now the commendation in verse 13. Jesus knew what they were doing and had done in the past. Now, works are the outcome of salvation, not the process for salvation. We're saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, Ephesians 2.89 says. James says, listen, I'll show you my works, and that'll be evident in my faith. But you tell me you have faith, where's your works? If you say you're a Christian, nothing's going on, something's wrong. Notice Jesus knew where they dwelt. 
they dwell was Satan's throne. He has established his throne, his stronghold. It's right in the midst of the church. Caesar worship followed passionately. The city boasted of being the official temple sweeper of Caesar's temple. Rome had the problem because it was so vast. How do you unify the kingdom, the empire? This is what they did. They brought Caesar worship. That settled it. But think with me as we continue in Revelation. What's going to happen in the Great Tribulation in the middle of the seven years? The Antichrist builds a temple and he declares himself to be God and he gives a mark to everybody and everybody has to worship him or they die. The last empire, the Ten Nation Confederacy, will be united again through Caesar worship, the Antichrist. The exact same thing. The altar of Zeus was elevated there 800 feet from the plain below, visible for miles. We see the things that we exalt here in the world, in America, as, as the things that have priority in life, and really they have no, no priority in terms of really what true value and, and true importance is. All of a sudden, Jesus is not controlled. Remember, he revealed himself as the one that has the stars in his hand in control. But he never forces himself, so people turn away, and all of a sudden they allow the world to control them, the satanic aspect to control. Very important. Now notice there in verse 13, Jesus knew they were holding fast to his name and not denying his faith in the midst of persecution. They still had faith in the doctrine of Christ, referring to all that he is and all that he has revealed about himself in the word. They were not denying his name and faith in his name under the pressure of persecution. They were being faithful witnesses. Faithful are those who confess Jesus to not deny the faith. For the sword of judgment dispels all fear to those who are faithful. But to those who deny the faith, the sword should instill fear. And so this was a commendation to Pergamos. There were a few faithful. Notice the condemnation comes next in verse 14 and 15. In verse 14, the church of Pergamos had those who held the doctrine of Balaam. The word but emphasized the sharp contrast between what Jesus commended them for and what now he condemns them for. Jesus charges them with compromise and tolerating sin by being in fellowship with those embracing the doctrine of Balaam and their practices. Balaam, as you know, was a prophet of God. You find him in Numbers 22 through 25. And King Balaam was the king of Moab, and he called him to hire him so he could curse Israel for him. And the first time that he sent emissaries to him, he went to the Lord. The Lord says, don't go with him, no matter what they promise you. So he sent him back. I can't go. But the king sent back more important emissaries with a greater reward. And Balaam went to God, and, and then God says, okay, if they come for you in the morning, then go with them. But next thing we read is Balaam's gone. So the angel of the Lord goes before with his judgment sword, and he's riding his donkey, as you know, and the donkey sees the angel, and Balaam is so blind by his greed, he doesn't see anything. So the donkey goes to one side and crushes his foot on the, against the wall. He smacks his donkey, gets back on track again. All of a sudden, the third time, the angel's right in the middle. The donkey just sits down. Balaam is so mad, he begins to beat his donkey. The donkey turns around and says, hey, wait a minute. I'm not the donkey that you've known since I've been young. Have you, ever known me? Have you ever known me to do anything like this? The prophet didn't even realize that he would have been shocked that he's talking. He said, if I had a sword, I'd kill you. The prophet was rebuked by the donkey. Now, do you believe that story? 
Is it hard for you to believe that God can make a donkey talk? <laughs> and so Balaam, as you know, went on. And he attempted to curse Israel, but he could not because God had blessed them. Finally, Balak got so mad that he clapped his hands and said, Get out of here. He said, I've called you to curse them, and you've blessed them all together. And God has kept you from the reward I wanted to give you. Ooh. But prior to his leaving, as you know, Balaam in Numbers 25 gave counsel to Balak. He says, you know, God's kind of funny. He's a holy God. And you don't have to curse them. If you just pollute them, God will deal with them. And so he says, invite your young ladies to go out there and show them how they worship their gods through sexual practices. And so they did. And as you know, it became, like it says here, a stumbling block, scandal on, not merely a trap, but one caught in the death trap. And when all this was going on, they were eating things sacrificed to idols. They were committing sexual immorality, both physical and spiritual, against the Lord. And so Phineas, as you know, was present there as one of these young Israelites grabbed one of these Midianites young lady and went right before the eyes of Moses and Joshua and them and Phineas and went right into the tent and started doing his thing. And Phineas went in with a javelin and thrust him both through, and God promised a place for Phineas perpetually because of his jealousy for God. Amazing. Balaam is mentioned throughout the scriptures in 2 Peter 2, Jude chapter 1, verse 11, Deuteronomy 23, 4, Joshua, Micah, warning against it because he forsook the right way because of the love of wages of unrighteousness. Jude warns us of the error of Balaam for prophet, a strong warning. He was a prophet of God. He wanted to die the death of a righteous while living unrighteously. You can't do that. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but they want to live like the devil. You can't do that. And so Paul encountered equally the problem with the Corinthians of sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 5, and he speaks about it. He says, be careful. You're dealing with demons. You're dealing with sacrifice. You're dealing with meat. You're dealing with all this stuff that idols are involved. Be careful. This principle is applicable today, even though literally we may not be idolaters and pagan of statutes or of that. But the principle is very, very clear. We're not to be unequally yoked. As a boyfriend or girlfriend, all you young people, you make sure that who you're dating is a Christian. Because if they're not Christians, let me tell you, they've only got one goal in mind, to use you and then put you aside. That's the sin nature is. And you don't compromise your character. And you may date a Christian, and they may be a Corinthian. And you cut them off. You don't lower your standard. No engagements, no marriages to non-believers. Now you and I know people who have been told and warned, and yet they still get married to non-believers, and then they're in the mess of their life. Now God, through His grace, sometimes saves that other mate, but sometimes He doesn't. And so now your house is divided. Now when the kids come, where are they going to be? Christians or heathens? Now's the tension. Now's the difficulty. You're going to spend the rest of your life with someone you marry. You want to make sure they're Christians so you have the same mind. You're going the same direction. You don't want to be unequally yoked in business either, partnerships. Because if you get involved in partnership and business with someone who's not a Christian, 
Sooner or later, they're not going to want to pay certain taxes, do something uh, that's unethical. You're part of it. Your witness is blown. You go into business with a Christian, and if a Christian rips you off, God will take care of him, he'll, he'll, and he'll back you up, all right? But at least you're being obedient to the Lord. Very, very important. Whenever we're unequally yoked, we will compromise. We will tolerate. We will mix truth with error, and we will do our best to justify it. And so we're not to love the world or the things that are in the world, 1 John 2, 15 through 16. We're not living for them. Remember the start of our study, we said that Pergamos means height and elevation through her marriage to the world. And she was elevated, interested in being seen, self-dependent. And the interesting thing is that the same root word from their accounts, we get our word bigamy and polygamy. <laughs> You're unfaithful. If you ever um, remember liking two guys or two girls at the same time, it was pretty hard, wasn't it? <laughs> One's always going to win out. You can't do it. Your loyalty has to be to one. It's God and the person of Christ or the world, one or the other. Notice verse 15, the church of Pergamos had those who held the doctrine of Nicolaitans. We've run into this before. The word Nico, again from the two, to conquer and laos the people. This system of uh, hierarchy, of, of controlling people, of, of, uh, of, of just not allowing them to have that freedom to worship God themselves, but, but you, you actually control, you dictate. I came out of the Catholic Church, uh, priests, cardinals, uh, popes, uh, all this stuff, and they tell you what to believe, when to believe it, and you can't question nothing. That's what it's talking about. And it goes into Protestant also. We're going to get to the Protestants, you know. Calvin was a Protestant pope. That's what they called him, okay. He controlled people, okay. That's wrong. And there's a lot of Protestant pastors that are like that. That's not what it's to be about. Everything's willingly. Everything's voluntary. Everything's through the Spirit of God. Everything run by the Scriptures. That's what's important. And so the Lord Jesus commended the church of Ephesus because they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, remember, which God also hated in chapter 2, verse 6. Here we have it again. The church of Pergamos, remember, this period of history, 313 to 600, the start of the Roman Catholic Church, as Constantine married the church to the world, making it his church. They had heathen basilicas, and they turned them into Christian churches, the basilicas and the temples. You can tell any difference. They would chisel off the names of the pagan gods and statues, and they would put Christian names under them. Constantine had a regiment of soldiers baptized all at one time. Mass baptism. Well, you're Christians now. You can't make people Christians. <laughs> he mixed anything and everything with and into Christianity. Their sin was toleration, compromise, and mixing truth with air. And so this was the condemnation, the Pergamos. Notice the exhortation in verse 16. The church is given biblical counsel to get back right on track. Don't miss it. They were to repent. You know the word, to change your mind. It brings a change of life, a change of heart. He's already addressed it to Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 5. He addresses it many times to the churches. That's the way back, repentance. 
The act of repentance has certain characteristics as we saw in Ephesus. You acknowledge your sin, you confess your sin, you abandon your sin, and whenever possible you make restitution of your sin. Sometimes it's not always possible and you have to have wisdom when and when not to. Notice the church is warned about the consequence if they do not obey the counsel. He's given them the way out. Now he tells them, if you don't take that way out, pay close attention. The Lord would come to them quickly. The faithful would stand, but those who were unfaithful, would, he would fight against them. The unfaithful with the sword of his mouth. This is not a vain threat. This is not like the mommy at the store. Johnny, one more time. No, no, no. When God says something, he means it. He will fight against them who are worldly. The sword is once again here, a large judgment sword. To the church of Ephesus, Jesus Christ would merely remove her lampstand from its place if she did not repent. The church of Pergamos, Jesus says that unless she repents as a church, he will fight against her to judge her. He's not talking to pagans. He's talking to his church who have gone back into paganism. He's talking to his church. The warning is to repent. This is the way to avert judgment and the consequence of a promise of judgment. Notice the city of Pergamos was under Roman rule. The sword was very relevant to her, how he addresses them. And so, the Roman governors were divided into two classes, those who had the power of the sword, Ulio Gladi, and those who did not. Jesus is the one who exercises power and authority. He is the one who takes life, who gives life. He's the judge of all mankind. And the Lord was the true ruler over the empire. He's the judge in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of men. He has the absolute right to make righteous judgment. He will make no mistakes. So this was the exhortation of Pergamos, a very important one. Notice the application in verse 17. The declaration is an invitation for anyone. There must be a willingness to listen as an individual. If you find yourself in such a church or a condition as a Christian at Pergamum, then you must make a decision. Is this something to pay heed to, or do you think yourself an exception? There is a sense of responsibility, accountability on what is being heard. There is culpability to every person who does not listen or take the way of repentance. The words, he who has an ear, as you know, were favorite words of Jesus. Here you have them again. The word here, we've talked about it before, akul. It means keen, sensitive. We get a word acute. Ability to hear, to hear clearly. The obedience is not limited to the message of the church of Pergamos, but to all the messages of the other six churches, churches, plural. The Spirit is the speaker in the person of Jesus, the comforter who brings glory only to Jesus, to no one else. And notice the declaration is an invitation with promise of reward. The one to receive the reward is the overcomer. Make sure you understand that. It is the one who abides in Christ Jesus that's the overcomer, John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
It is the faith of the Christian that overcomes the world. 1 John 5, 4 through 5. The Lord will give some, first of all, the hidden manna to eat. Notice the word some. Some will repent in this church system. Not all. The hidden manna is in contrast to the eating of things offered to idols with the doctrine of Balaam. You rather sit at the Lord's table than at the table of the world. And so, the manna. But also notice the Lord will give to some a white stone. The high priest used to have the Urim and the Thummim inside the pouch of the, of the ephod. And they believed it was a white and black stone to, de- to uh, know the mind of God. Some people say it refers to here, but it's out of context. I don't think it fits. But there are a couple other things. Law courts at, at the, that time used stones to reveal judgments of a man. The black stone meant that he was guilty, condemned, and the white stone meant he was acquitted. And certainly those who are faithful will be handed that white stone. We're acquitted. Our sins have been paid for. We don't receive the judgment of God. It's also used as an invitation to a banquet. And because we are children of God, we will sit at the banquet hall with God. We will eat with him. The stone will have on it, notice, a new name. In the ancient world, uh, objects of wood and metal and stone were called a tessera. And they would be written on it to confer privilege and favor, perhaps for food, uh, as a victor of a game, or for gladiators who had survived and retired and were now given this tessera to indicate they had proven themselves as valor, uh, very brave men. And it's a great parallel to the overcomer of the kingdom here as we have trusted Christ regardless of, of what it's cost us. Worldliness, it's ever-present. You know, when a boy gets up at 6 in the morning and he has a paper route, people say he's a go-getter. If the church uh, where he attends should ask him to do the same, get up at 6 o'clock and do some work for the Lord, they will say that's expecting too much of the boy. If uh, women spend eight hours from their home working in the factory or the offices, she would be called a helper who is very energetic as a wife. If, however, she was willing to do the same for the Lord, people would say religion has gone to her head. If one ties himself to uh, debt, uh, making payments, whatever amount, for months, weeks, whatever, years, and you pay him willingly, you're called responsible But uh, the same person will never commit themselves to consistent uh, giving to God because if they did, they call you crazy. (laughs) A crazy world indeed, but the problem is that there is a mindset of many people that are in the church today, and that is the mind of worldliness because they've let first things become last and last things become first because they become worldly as people and as churches. And they've married the world system. And their system of thinking is worldly. You want to be exalted? You want to be elevated? Then let God do for you what only he can do through obedience. Don't marry the world. Don't tolerate compromise. Remember, if your lifestyle is worldly, you are deceiving yourselves. And you will come under God's judgment. This was the application to Pergamos. And so the message to the church of Pergamos is don't become worldly. Don't tolerate sin. Don't compromise God's word. Again, the message speaks of a local church in Paul's day, Pergamos. It speaks of a type of church that's going to exist throughout the church history. 
It speaks of a period of church history from 313 to 600. It speaks of a type of Christian that can and will exist in the church. And so each of us can judge ourselves. Are we a Pergamos church? Am I a Pergamos Christian? I hope not. And if I am, then I need to repent. Pastor Xavier Reese with an honest look at what it means to be worldly. And you can request a copy of today's challenging lesson titled The Worldly Church Pergamos. It's available for just $4 on CD. And this will also contain what we covered in our study the last time we were together. So the title to ask for once again is The Worldly Church Pergamos. Or simply mention today's date when you write Simple Truths. 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for telling us the call letters of this station when you contact us. Idolatry is a practice done away with in Old Testament times, or is it? What happens when a modern church practices idolatry? That's our topic as Pastor Xavier Reese brings us more Simple Truths. That's next time. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 